Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Real Love Podcast Series, right here on the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This series features a variety of conversations with some of the world's finest teachers and thinkers, all exploring Sharon's new book, Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection. Real Love is a field guide for anyone seeking awakened living in the 21st century. To get your copy of Real Love, visit SharonSalzberg.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please visit www.BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon.
Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm so happy to have Mark Epstein join me today for this episode of the Real Love podcast series. Mark is a renowned psychiatrist and author who for many years has paved the way in the U.S. exploring the cross-section of Western psychotherapy and Buddhist psychology. He's the author of a number of books, including Thoughts Without a Thinker, which I really consider to have almost like created the field, um, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, and more recently, The Trauma of Everyday Life. Mark and I are old friends. We've known each other for a really long time. We met first in Boulder, Colorado in the summer of 1974 at Naropa Institute when I had just started teaching. Hi, Mark. Hey, Sharon. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. So I wondered if uh, you wanted to start by talking a little bit about your own story and your coming to Naropa, you're starting to practice meditation. Sure. For your listeners who don't know anything about my work, I'm a psychiatrist. Uh, I've been in private practice for God knows how long, 30 years <laughs> or more now. And uh, But I had the unusual and I think lucky experience of being uh, exposed to Buddhist psychology before I knew very much about anything else, certainly before I understood anything about what being a psychiatrist was going to be about. Uh, and I, um, uh, I was in college taking a religion course, uh, you know, read a little bit of Buddhist verse, liked it, took a psychology course, and the uh, graduate student who was the teaching fellow there was a fellow named Daniel Goldman, mm -hmm. who um, had uh, luckily already been in India and been studying Buddhism and recognized my interest and told me to go out to Naropa, where he said some old friends of his were going to be teaching. Uh, and I uh, listened to him and went out there, and I met you. Mm -hmm. And uh, the rest is history. I found Buddhism. I started meditating. That gave me some kind of courage that let me go to medical school uh -huh. uh, with the uh, notion of becoming a psychiatrist, which I followed through on. And then um, somewhere in there, I started to write, trying to figure out what I understood and what I didn't understand about how uh, Buddhist thought and Western uh, psychological thought, how they were the same and how they were different. Uh, I was trying to figure out if the ego that uh, Western psychology was interested in was the same one that Buddhism said didn't exist, and if the emptiness that Western psychology said was a problem was the same one that Buddhism said was the solution. Mm -hmm. Those kind of questions preoccupied me at, at first. The Did you come to any answers that about that? Oh, I came to so many answers. I've been asking the same questions and coming to new answers ever since. <laughs> What's your latest answer? I'm so curious. Those are very profound questions. Do you think that the ego, which uh, Western psychology says exists and maybe even needs to be refined and Buddhism says perhaps does not exist, do you think they're the same thing? Well, Freud called the ego a necessary fiction. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, I've come to agree with that. I think it's necessary, but I also think it's a fiction. So we can't exist without it, but we don't have to take its reality at face value. You know, from the right angle, both Buddhism and uh, psychoanalytic thought are, actually are agreeing on that. They, they might come at it from a different place, but I think they end up agreeing. And do you think that the emptiness which... Uh, Western psychology might describe as the problem as kind of a bleakness or 
sense of bleakness within and Buddhist teaching might describe as the truth of things, the reality and the answer to the problem? Do you think they're yeah. the same? I asked that question once to Gelek Rinpoche, mm -hmm. who is a very learned Tibetan Lama who taught at uh, the University of Michigan. He spoke good English. Years ago, I asked him that question, and he surprised me. He said, oh, the Western emptiness that you see as a problem, it's like a blacksmith striking on an anvil. He said, those are like the sparks that come off the anvil. The mm -hmm. anvil is the Buddhist emptiness, and the the patients who are complaining about a sense of debilitating emptiness are actually hitting on something real, but they can't handle it yet. Oh, wow. So they're like, you know, freaking out a little bit at something that if they could learn how to stabilize their minds, they could find the joyful quality of it. So I love that answer. I've been trying to understand what he meant, you know, ever since. But I, I think, you know, clinically speaking, I think he was on to something that rather than just putting people down and telling them they have it all wrong, to, to try to lower them more deeply into the places they're afraid of that might actually contain some light or some truth. That's uh, often what I try to do in therapy with people. That's a fantastic answer because I think of those many moments, I'm sure you had those experiences as well when you described something you didn't think was that great to a meditation teacher. And they would be so happy, yeah. like, wow, good, you know, and are they just trying to cheer me up because I'm so desolated or do they really think this is a good experience? Like maybe a glimpse. That's one of my favorite stories about you. That's one of my favorite stories that you tell about crying, uh, crying on retreat with. Uh, uh, Saida Upandita. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, yeah. And you, you were reluctant to describe the extent of, yeah. of your crying, and then finally you did, and he said, oh, when, when you cry, you should cry with your whole heart. Yeah, right? that's right. Isn't it something like that? Yeah, I was very yeah, embarrassed you know, to tell him. I hadn't known him before I started sitting this retreat with him, and a friend of mine had died not too long before, and I was feeling tremendous sadness and very reluctant to disclose it. And we were seeing the teacher who was Saida Upandita six days a week for these short meetings to describe our practice. So I finally had to say it, you know, it was happening so much. And, and he said to me, are you crying? And I thought, oh, no. Like, and I said, just a little bit, not much. <laughs> and, and he said, he just kind of shook his head dolefully. And he said, every time you cry, you should cry your heart out. That way you'll get the best release. And he could have knocked me over with a feather. I was like, really? That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So actually, I have another question sort of along those lines which has come up, yeah. it came up in my book, it comes up a lot these days because the way the word attachment is being used in Western psychology and uh, nobody wants disordered attachment and you want secure attachment. And the impression is that in Buddhist thought, you don't want attachment at all. And uh, I talk in the book about this psychologist, I met Philip Shaver, who, who said he was telling this story at a Mind and Life conference about how he had the odd task of preparing to talk to the Dalai Lama about attachment as though to teach him. Huh. And his conclusion mm -hmm. after studying it, he's not a practitioner, but he, he tried to study and was that what Buddhists mean by non-attachment may very well be what Western psychotherapy means by secure attachment. Uh huh. Do you agree? Well, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around what the Buddhists mean by non-attachment because mm -hmm. people take it to mean that they shouldn't, uh, you know, shouldn't be attached to the people they love. 
And there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the Western psychologists mean about attachment because people take it to mean clinging, you know, that if I'm attached and securely attached, I should be holding on all the time. Mm -hmm. But it actually means, like I think that guy was saying to you, it means the ability to trust that when the person leaves the room that they're not abandoning you. Mm -hmm. So a secure attachment from the Western side means that the difficult emotions of early childhood that arise around uh, our primary caregivers, that we learn how to handle those emotions without freaking out. So we can get angry and not, and not believe that we're going to obliterate the person who mm-hmm. we love. You know, We can be anxious and not get lost in the anxiety to the extent that we start to be afraid that the person who left to walk the dog is going to get killed while they're mm-hmm. out. You know? mm-hmm. So I think there's something about navigating emotional life that Buddhism teaches us, that mm-hmm. helps us with uh, being more securely attached. And there's something that Western therapy has focused a lot on, which is helping people to tolerate their more difficult emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and both of those approaches, I think, are working towards the same thing. I talked to Stephen Batchelor once uh-huh. during, when I was writing my, my book about desire. Stephen he's, and, and uh, his wife, Martine. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, here's the difference. Uh, if, if you hold a coin in your palm with your fist down, you have to clench your fist so, as not to drop the coin. Mm-hmm. But if you turn your hand and open it, the coin just rests in the palm of your hand and mm. you don't have to hold on tight to it. So the secure attachment is like the, uh, the hand with the palm open, you know? That's fabulous. That's really great. I always remember that. It also reminds me of at times when you and I have taught together, which has sadly been too long um, since that happened, uh, when you quote G.W. Winnicott saying, just be a good yeah. enough mother. And as you made a point of saying that, yeah. it was the 50s in England and the people coming with their children with the women, the mothers, so... Yeah. Say, be a good enough parent, be a good enough mother. And somebody in the room always raises their hand and says, well, what's a good enough mother? And you've said um, someone who can survive their child's rage. And then they say, what does surviving your child's rage mean? And you talk about a state which is neither invasive, intrusive, nor withdrawn. And I always say, that's mindfulness. Yeah. That's what we call mindfulness. That's right. Well, that's how I got into it, because I thought, oh my God, that's such a good description of what mindfulness is all about. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then I loved the notion of good enough, mm-hmm. because good enough, you know, there's a tendency even with mindfulness to be like driving yourself and berating yourself mm-hmm. or never being mindful enough or continuously enough or, you know, like good enough mindfulness. Mm-hmm. So this idea, there's something so forgiving in Winnicott. He has a whole paper that I love to read to people about you know, 15 reasons why mothers hate their babies. <laughs> but, they, but the whole point of the uh, article is that even with all those reasons to hate their babies, the mothers actually love them, you know? So he's so generous in his approach that uh, uh, it really helps with this, I think, Western tendency to be uh, berating oneself all the time for not being good enough. Well, that also reminds me of the place where I actually began this book, Real Love, which was looking at the stories we tell about ourselves and then the stories that others tell about us, like the perfect mother or the horribly imperfect person. And this is a quote from you, where you said, the picture we present to ourselves of who we think we ought to be 
obscures who we really are. So can you talk a little bit about those narratives and how they get in the way of our ability to love? Well, I learned a lot about that from you, Sharon, because in your book, Faith, Mm -hmm. you start that book by talking about the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves Mm -hmm. and how those, those stories come to dominate and eclipse who we really are. And I see that all the time in therapy with people, that the childhood feelings that come out of a less than perfect environment in which most of us grow up, Mm -hmm. the childhood stories that we repeat to ourselves about what's wrong with us, as opposed usually to what's wrong with the environment that we're growing up in, Mm -hmm. because we can't distinguish one from the other when we're children, how those stories that we unconsciously and sometimes consciously repeat to ourselves come to, to uh, you know, define ourselves to ourselves. And that's such a limitation. It's such a fraction of who we actually are. And I think you've been incredibly eloquent in all of your work in describing the gap between how we imagine ourselves and who we actually might be. And that's, I think, the great gift of Buddhist thought, that it uh, opens up the mystery of who we might be, as opposed to uh, the narrative that we know so well about who we think we are. Well, thank you. And it also makes me think about the story we tell about love as a culture, as a society, and what we're taught love is, and what we need, and uh, the yearning, and, and the longing. And it's almost like the pivotal line of my book comes from the movie Dan in Real Life, uh, where one of the characters mm-hmm. says, love is not a feeling, it's an ability. And mm-hmm. one of my editors challenged me on that and said, of course, it's a feeling. And, and that's true. We, we know it is a feeling. That's what we want. Uh, that is what we seek. But what if we recast our whole sense of what love is? And, and it wasn't so narrowly defined by the pressures of the culture. It's got to look this exact way. You know, what if we thought about it as a capacity inside of ourselves that might manifest differently in different situations or at different times, but it was really in our hands, not so much in the hands of someone else that we have to, like, pray shows up, you know, and doesn't leave. Yeah. One of my very first profound experiences on a meditation retreat was early on when I was just doing what I was told and trying to watch my breath, and out of nowhere came these very, very intense feelings of love. They were feelings, but they were so strong, and they weren't directed at anybody in particular that I can remember. They just started pouring out of me in a way that completely turned my head around as to who I thought I was. Mm -hmm. And I chased that feeling for a long time, you know, going to more meditation retreats, trying to recreate the experience which just, you know, put me in a cul-de-sac of my own making. Mm -hmm. But the uh, initial, that initial experience has really never left me in terms of informing me in some way uh, uh, about who who or what uh, I might be Mm -hmm. or what Mm -hmm. kind of capacity I'm actually capable of. I have a psychoanalytic friend named Michael Eigen who talks about becoming partners with the capacities that constitute us mm. as, the, uh, as, the, as the task of, uh, of life, you know, or of therapy. And th- that seems to align with what you're talking about, mm-hmm. about love mm-hmm. as a capacity or an ability rather than a feeling. 
That's I'm right. sort of into the feeling of it. Yeah, yeah of and course. The longing and the yearning and so on. I, I think there's a rich trove of spiritual energy in all of that. Uh-huh. So I, I'm into defending that kind of, uh, <laughs> of love, too. But I totally know. I think you're, you know, I totally understand what you're saying. I think it's right. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of love as a capacity is... I think very empowering, you know, not that it, it's not experienced as a feeling and, and the, I actually agree about the yearning, um, although it completely drives some people. Um, but it's, you know, there's yeah. something about that sense of empowerment, which is kind of incredible. Like I've had similar experiences to what you just described in meditation where, you know, I was doing intensive loving kindness meditation in Burma and I'd have this experience and I think, am I really capable of this much love? And I think this is astonishing. Yeah. This is me, you know, like I'm feeling this. This is this is amazing. Yeah. And and it also brought up a kind of hidden question, I think, in, in my book, which I turned in the book and it was being edited in England. And the main comment I got in an editorial way was you didn't really finish the book. And I said, yeah, I finished the oh. book. You know, I finished it with the story. And. And they said, no, you know, it just kind of drifts off. You need to really finish the book. And for months I tried to finish the book and I just stare at that screen and I thought I finished the book Uh, and I couldn't come up with anything else. And then the election happened here in the U.S. and I finished the book. I finished it in like 15 minutes because what came to me Uh was that if, if love is a capacity within us, if it's a, an ability, then is it also our responsibility is the love mm-hmm. in a conversation, the love in a room, the love in a consideration actually up to us if we do mm-hmm. have this capacity within, no matter what the circumstance. Mm-hmm. That's very good, ability and responsibility, Sharon. Thank That's you. Very good. <laughs> it's hard Thank to you. find an ending for a book. Yes. And ending a book is one of the hardest things. It can and be very hard. really good, though. You could do another book. <laughs> Thank you. Actually, I, I had a. Um, That's really good. I had a wish that I had more in the book about kind of the love people describe, you know, with a kind of spiritual master or a, a teacher. So it was like that almost sinking feeling, like, uh oh, you know, there's something more to say. Oh no. That's a good feeling. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Is it a feeling or is it a capacity? That's a feeling. <laughs> That's <laughs> definitely a feeling. Oh, Thank you, doctor. <laughs> you have more. You have more to give. It's a responsibility. That's a responsibility. Thank you. Well, you know, I was just with Ramdas in yeah. Hawaii. And so, of course, there's somebody who's for whom that kind of devotional love um, has uh, supported him through, you know, his massive stroke and disability and, and so many changes in his life. And you know, he just seems so loving and, and so kind of shining with it. And uh, it was really sort of amazing. Yeah, very inspiring to be around that and somebody. You know, and then the opposite of that, of course, is is so prevalent because many times when I've taught, you know, there's, there's almost a sense of love as a kind of weakness or, or uh, sentimentality that, you know, we don't want to lose our edge. We don't want to lose our sort of ironic detachment that they're, uh, it's too gooey. And even mm-hmm. Dan Harris, who's a good friend of both of ours, you know, and he was reminding me the other day that when he was 
reading my first book called Loving Kindness on the New York City subway on an airplane. He used to cover the cover because he was so embarrassed to be seen reading a book <laughs> yeah. called Loving Kindness. And I thought, God, it's like pornography or something. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's also a prevalent idea that it's, um, you know, it's going to lead us astray in some way that we're going to lose our, our cutting edge of, of being able to think. Yeah. Well, or it's just going to be embarrassing. Well, it often is, actually, <laughs> come to think of it. <laughs> Do you know how Freud talked about love in the, in the therapeutic relationship? No, tell me. That's going to be the cornerstone he of my called, next book. He called it the unobjectionable positive transference. Okay. The, the unobjectionable positive transference. So, uh, you know, his whole thing was that the feelings that arose between patient and therapist, like between someone and their guru, was the thing to focus on, you know, that you reproduced with your therapist all the unworked through uh, relationship stuff of your earlier life. But where there was love, he was like, oh, that's unobjectionable. And we don't have to analyze that. You know, that just comes with the territory. Mm. If you create a trusting environment with someone, then those feelings emerge by themselves. So it was actually sort of a Buddhist sensibility that, you know, he didn't know it was Buddhist, but he was creating this environment like a like a Winnicott, uh, good enough mother kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And out of that environment of not judging and feeling free to say whatever came to mind, etc., people's true nature started to emerge. And he was like, leave that alone. You don't have to analyze it. And the, the, uh, the psychoanalyst sort of uh, forgot about that over time. So the unobjectionable positive transference got sort of sunk into the uh, darkness of the treatment and everyone started focusing just on the anger and so on. Mm. But it's there to be used as an energy. So it's like the holding container too, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like the feelings that come within the holding container Uh if uh the holding is not too tight and not Not too too loose. loose, right. The same way the Buddha talked about right effort, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. not too tight. That's really great. When I wrote Faith, one of the stories I tell in there is about a conversation I had with a, another psychiatrist in New York City, not you. And uh, we were just in Amy's apartment, actually, a few of us. And we were having this conversation, which looking back seems very reductionistic. But it was like, what's the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship? And he said, love. He said, if you put any good psychotherapist up against the wall, they'd say love. And, you know, I had one of those experiences where these words just came out of my mouth. And so what came out of my mouth was, well, for all we know, the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship is the fact that someone showed up for their appointment. Because I was talking about that as a state of faith, like something gets us out of bed, has us willing to try, you know, willing to show up into the unknown. And then my book came out on my birthday, and this particular psychiatrist was in the audience at at the bookstore I was reading, and so I read that story for him, and then he came up to have a book signed, and I wrote, he he came up to me and he said, I think you're wrong. He said, I think it's love. So in big letters I wrote, it's love, uh, Sharon. And then he came to the birthday party that someone was having for me afterwards, and so hours later, he came up to me and he said, you know, I've been thinking about it. I think you're right. <laughs> so I said, give me back the book. And then I thought of him the other day because I thought, oh, now I'm writing a book about love. Maybe he was right after all. 
Is it all about the love in the room? <laughs> so I was, you know, challenged to try to um, come up with other ways of saying love or real love. And I just came up with connection, like a profound sense of connection. What would you say if you had to find another word for it? Well, I'm, in, I'm into defending desire. Okay. So I, I would bring back desire. It's not exactly the same as love, obviously. Uh-huh. But from the Buddhist side of things, we're so conditioned to, uh, you know, recoil from desire. Uh-huh. Like it's the, uh, you know, the, the second noble truth or something. It's the cause of suffering. Uh-huh. I think that's a misapprehension of what the second noble truth is saying and that... Uh, uh, there's a lot to be learned from desire if we make room for it, if we open ourselves to it, and if we're willing to be disappointed. Uh, you know, there's a famous book by uh, Anne Carson called Eros, the Bittersweet. Mm. Uh, but when she, when she takes the word apart, the Greek uh, uh, antecedents of the word, she says, actually, it's sweet, bitter. Eros is actually sweet, bitter. Mm. And the first bite is the best, you know, <laughs> um, and then we want more. We want more. Inevitably, it disappoints. You know, there's a gap always between desire and its satisfaction. Freud said that, too. But that if we're willing to go into that gap, if we're willing to allow the desire, but experience the unfulfilled nature always, Uh that's a very illuminating place to be. And I think you see that in... um, a lot of the devotional poetry in Rumi and the in the bhakti traditions that Ramdas is part of, you know, where there's a yearning that's cultivated and it's a kind of infinite yearning. And so rather than uh, put yourself down for not being able to achieve perfect satisfaction, you let your heart keep opening and opening, reaching and reaching and reaching. And that might actually be love, you know. Wow. So would you talk about desire then as almost this kind of life force, like seeking to exist? Uh, well, I think seeking to connect. Seeking you, you to know, connect. You, the word that you use, seeking to connect. Connect with another, connect with your own true nature. Uh-huh. In the secret Buddhist teachings that the Tibetans were custodians of, they talk about the orgasmic nature of uh-huh. reality, uh-huh. You know, that we're all kind of encased in our own incarnations where we think we're separate and we're reaching for this thing that we can't find. But our underlying nature, the, the thing that's already there, is so fantastic that it's orgasmic and it's, and it's bliss, you know. And sometimes when you and I teach with Robert Thurman, he uh, edges into that territory where he'll be talking about the underlying orgasmic nature of reality, and, uh-huh. and no one quite understands what he's talking about. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but I think that's where he's coming from, and that's what he's getting at. So I have a quotation which I believe is from you, where you say, one of the age-old truths about love is that while it offers unparalleled opportunities for union and the lifting of ego boundaries, it also washes us up on the shores of the loved one's otherness. Right. Does it sound like you? <laughs> Yeah, I stole it from uh, a teacher of mine named Otto Kernberg, okay. uh, who was a supervisor of mine. And he wrote a book uh, about intimacy uh, where he quotes the Mexican poet Octavio Paz as uh, saying something like that about how uh, you can penetrate another physically, but you can never penetrate their consciousness. Mm. So love uh, and its desire for connection washes us up against the other person's impenetrability, mm-hmm. you know, against their otherness. 
And then he says, love, therefore, is a prerequisite for loneliness. Mm. So I thought that was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Because I think that that dialectic between um, separateness and union, you know, from the Eastern side, from the spiritual side, we're kind of conditioned to look to union, to oneness Mm -hmm. as the ultimate expression of something. But to be able to hold the paradox of both, you know, we're both a separate individual, separate consciousness, separate ego, separate identity, but we're also part of something bigger, mm-hmm. you, you know, and our, in, in our subjectivity, we necessarily uh, go back and forth between those two. If we can hold both of them, then I think we're coming closer to some kind of truth. I also have a passage in my book quoting B. Janet Hibbs, Ph.D., uh, we had an email exchange, actually, she and I, about kind of scorekeeping in relationship and this idea of fairness and reciprocity, uh, which is not the same thing necessarily as keeping score, you know, how much mm-hmm. did I do for you and you therefore owe mm-hmm. me. So she says, ideally in love relationships, reciprocity is a seesaw of turn-taking, which has a generous feel. People recount quid pro quo accountings of who owes what to whom when there's a felt violation of guilt and take. And this is often in the front lines of a relationship, right? The give and take of the place where our larger sense of love um, gets challenged. I hear that a lot in in couples where where one person will say, well, I would never do that to them. You know, I would never treat them the way they're treating me. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I always say, well, of course you wouldn't. But you would, you know, the way uh, what they would object about the way you're treating them is totally different from what you're, what uh-huh. you're objecting to how they're treating you. But I think that need to be counting or measuring, you know, that that's uh, something that the ego is constantly doing. It's one of one of the ways it tries to maintain control of things, you know, is by taking measurements. So once we once we see how relentless that is, it sort of becomes ridiculous, and then then you can let it go a little bit. Mm-hmm. So here's another kind of measurement. I had I did an evening um, not too long ago in New York City with Bell Hooks. Oh, really? And yeah, and she was one of my early friends when I first moved back to New York as an adult, and then she moved to Kentucky, and we kind of lost touch with each other. Uh, and then uh, I didn't have an apartment for oh. a month as I was between sublets and I was uh, for a couple of nights I was staying in this hotel and I walked into the lobby and there she was. So yeah. we've been back in touch. And um, she said that uh, she wanted to challenge me about something in the book where I said something like, I didn't believe you had to really love yourself completely before you could love others. I felt like I knew plenty of people who yeah. loved others and not so much themselves, but yeah. that wasn't sustainable in a good way. It would get really distorted and weird and, and she said she felt like people uh, could maybe care about others, but not actually love others without loving themselves. And we've had, you know, an ongoing dialogue about this. I also went to Kentucky, and we continued the conversation. And, oh, that's interesting. And you know, and I said, well, you know, maybe my uh, the word I was really emphasizing was completely. You know, this kind of project mentality that people get into, like, well, I have to really learn to love myself totally before I can pay any attention to anyone else is obviously different than, you know, the Buddhist perspective about caring for others. But um, what do you think about what she was saying? Well, uh, what it's making me think, I, um, I had a, a wonderful therapist years ago who used to say to me, you know, uh, true love is always mutual. 
And I love that thing about it, that it's always mutual, mm-hmm. um, if it's really love, you know. Because um, uh, I, always, I always tell people, and I have felt for a long time, that this idea of loving yourself uh, doesn't really make any sense. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't, we don't even understand ourselves, let alone how can we, mm-hmm. how can we love ourselves. Mm-hmm. But uh, the experience of being able to love another person, I think, comes more easily. Mm-hmm. And I think it's out of loving another person that maybe we learn how to love ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because if true love is always mutual, then if we're truly loving another person, we have to be experiencing them loving us also. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think that's how a lot of the negativity gets released. Because if you, if you start to realize that you're as lovable as the person who you're loving mm-hmm. feels to you, then, then you have to release some of that. Uh, encrustation of shame, you know, that uh, mm. that naturally accrues to all of us as we make our way out of childhood and adolescence. Mm. That's where I'm at with that. Uh-huh. In your book, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, you talk about happiness coming from letting go. Can you say what letting go is in this context of love? Well, I think in the context of love, the letting go has to do with what I was just talking about mm-hmm. in a way. It's allowing the feelings which can be transporting, you know, like in my that first meditation retreat that I was talking yeah. about where the love came like a wave washing through me. In order to really experience that, I had to let go of a lot of stuff mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and really give myself over to the feelings. So I think there's a... Um, there's a giving that quality of giving yourself over to something that feels more powerful than you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a lot of what I mean. I think I was inspired in writing that by the the nicknames in Tibetan Buddhism of the four higher stages of Tantra, which they compare to the experience of falling in love. Mm. They, they say that uh, in, in regular life, the closest that we come to what's available through meditation is the experience of falling in love. And the four stages, if I remember properly, are looking, smiling, embracing, and orgasm. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, first one, looking, is where you make eye contact. And it's in in the mutuality of the eye contact, there's a letting go. Uh, And similarly, when two people are smiling at each other, when they're embracing, and certainly an orgasm. And then they they talk about uh, sneezing. Sneezing is another time where you have to let go and waking from a dream. There are a couple of other uh, regular life moments that have that letting go quality. And, that, and in meditation, we're um, basically cultivating that ability, to use your language, uh, where mm-hmm. we're, we're, go, we're letting go for longer periods of time or in a deeper way. We're opening to something we don't quite know what. And, but that's all letting go also. Wow, thank you. My last question, what do you mean by the trauma of everyday life, which is another book title of yours, which I just love the title, and, but what do you mean by it? Well, there's a famous book by Freud called The, uh, the Psychopathology of Everyday Life. Uh-huh. So in a way, I was riffing on, uh, on that. But what I was trying to say was that we, you know, uh, trauma, we tend to think of as something that only happens to other people uh-huh. uh, or that only happens in major catastrophes, but that actually regular life is filled with experiences that are traumatic from uh, the illnesses of our loved ones to the struggles of people that we're close to, 
to uh, what happens when our pets get sick mm-hmm. to, you know, just like there are a million things. Children are uh, dealing with traumatic situations, often in less than perfect environments, which most of us have experienced. So I was using trauma in a way the Buddha uses the word dukkha. Mm -hmm. Dukkha conventionally translated as suffering, that life is filled with a kind of suffering. A better translation might be um, unsatisfactoriness, that life is filled with a sense of pervasive unsatisfactoriness. Or if you take the word apart, dukkha, it actually just means hard to face. Mm -hmm. That there's a quality to all of our lives that's hard to face. And in our language, our contemporary language, we would call that traumatic. In the Buddhist time, he just called it dukkha. Mm -hmm. That's great. At one point, one of my editors said to me, because I spent a lot of time with this book collecting stories and experiences from other people. I really wanted to hear and learn from, from other people about their experience of love, what it meant in their lives, and, and so on. And at one point, this editor said to me, don't you know anybody whose partner doesn't have a disease? <laughs> I thought, well, maybe not, I guess, because <laughs> those are the people telling me their stories. <laughs> you know? So there's a lot of trauma in everyday life, actually. It's not our fault. That's yeah. the main thing. It's just there to be worked with, you know. There it is. Yep. I would really encourage all of you to check out more of Mark's really brilliant work. Find him at www.markepsteinmd.com. Next April, he has a book coming out with a really great title, I think, called Advice Not Given, A Guide to Getting Over Yourself. And if you go to the webpage, uh, you'll find things like his, his Facebook page and so on. So thank you really so much for taking this time. and It makes me really want to see you soon. It's great talking with you, Sharon. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. Join us this summer for the Real Love Challenge. To get your copy of Real Love, visit SharonSalzberg.com. May all beings be happy.